Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number eight of Sober Speak. I'm going to start today with a reading, and this is from February 26th uh, in our book, uh, Daily Reflections. AA is no success story in the ordinary sense of the word. It is a story of suffering transmitted under grace into spiritual progress. And that is from As Bill Sees It on page 35. We're glad you are all, you are all here. Uh, as Sober Speak, you will find podcasts of people sharing their story, recovery, much like in a speaker meeting. These are men and women who will tell us their experience, strength, and hope centered around the 12 steps of recovery. My name is John M. I'm an alcoholic, and I'll be the host of this episode number eight. Uh, and we welcome all your comments. You can get in touch with us at SoberSpeak.com or just send me your comments directly at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Remember, self, SoberSpeak is a self-supporting through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Please remember... We don't speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope of recovery. For those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want and leave the rest behind. So I am sitting here today with a uh, lady that I had met recently. I guess, uh, what is it, Samara? Like a week or two ago About now, week, right? yeah. About a week mm-hmm. or so. Um Samara came to um, our uh, uh, group, our um, the home group that I go to here in Texas, and she gave her story, and uh, I was absolutely mesmerized by it. And so I went up afterwards, and I asked her if she would come by and be part of the pro- podcast, and she graciously agreed to do such. So, um, first of all, Samara, let me... Um, I'll say this, they're going to notice as soon as you start talking that you got a little bit of a, you're not from Texas, I'll put it that way. So (laughs) why why don't you tell everybody where you are from, Samara, and we'll just start there. Sure. Uh, My name is Samara and I am an alcoholic. Thank you. Um, I am originally from England. Uh, I was born in Leicester, which is in the East Midlands. And then I spent about six years in London before I moved to Dallas, Texas. Um, And London is actually where I got sober. Wow. So you, so you, uh, by the way, my, just, uh, this is as a side note, I think I told you this before, my mom is actually from uh, uh, Scotland. She grew oh, up yes, in, of course. in mm-hmm. Glasgow, the, the, uh, the metropolitan city of Glasgow. And yeah. I'm just kind of kidding because it's, it's a uh, skag capital of the UK. <laughs> yeah. The skag capital, right? Yeah. yeah. I've heard it's a little bit rough. So, uh, yeah. It's rough is one word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> If you want to do an understatement, really. <laughs> but you know what? Strong recovery there. It's it's frontline stuff. It's really strong. Really? Some strong groups there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, I haven't been back as an adult and uh, I would like to go back there and mm. uh, uh, visit that place. But um, okay. So, so you were born there. And uh, so I know also that you, uh, uh, you know, so... I know from listening to your story, right? I don't know a ton about you, but just that at 45 minutes, an hour that I was able to listen to your story, 
Um, I know that you are, uh, uh, and we talked a little bit about this on the phone, you are a unique mix for Mm -hmm. here in America. So why don't you describe that unique mix for the audience so they can get a flavor? Sure. So I, I mean, I moved here uh, in 2016, which was, uh, as a lot of my Brit friends say, was probably the worst time to move to America because I'm an immigrant, <laughs> a woman of color from an Islamic background, which kind of is the worst mix you can be, I guess. But never mind. Um, but I'm here you, now. They didn't throw me out of the country, yeah. so it's okay. So, so let me ask you this. So come, you know, and. I, I'm here, right? I don't have to be concerned about getting here and all that sort of... Mm-hmm. Is there... What's the process like? Was it easy? Was it difficult? It was rough, actually. It was a long... I, I mean, it didn't take as long as uh, a lot of people that, that go through an immigration process. But I went through and I came through as a fiancé visa. But, you know, that will elaborate on later in the story. Mm-hmm. But um, it was... You know, I had to have a clean record, basically. And by God's grace, in my drinking, I never got arrested, never got a DUI. I actually only got my driver's license here in the United States, like, about a year ago. So, because there was no reason for me to drive in, in England, and I had no passion to do it. So, so there's there's a, a a trash TV that I've actually been kind of addicted to uh, over the Shameless. last year. <laughs> this, is, this one's called uh, A 90 Day Fiancé. Oh my gosh, yeah. I watched that addictively before I, <laughs> I came to the United States, I have to admit. Um, yeah, I mean, the process was just a lot of paperwork. It's mm-hmm. just a lot of paperwork, and most of it was jargon. So if you want to do it the easy way, you get a lawyer and they do all the work for you, but of course that costs money. I mean, we did that. Um, and you, you can, you know, file the paperwork yourself, yeah. but it's just a minefield, a right. complete minefield. But uh, I had to go through medical exam. You know, I had a doctor check me out. I had, uh, I had to go and have an interview. And the interview wasn't really an interview. It was just me standing at the desk. And the guy said, uh, what did he ask me? He asked me um, if my future husband had any siblings. He asked what the first name of my future father-in-law was. And actually, funnily enough, I forgot. I just had an absolute <laughs> memory block. Like, it just went blank. And he goes, so what is his name? And I went, <gasps> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and it just started laughing. And the guy just kind of looked at me and laughed. But, you know, the lawyers just said it's an open and shut case, really. It's not, it's, no, not complicated. I'm not a 19-year-old Thai woman right. that's marrying an 8-year-old right. American guy. Right. That looks a little right, bit right. weird. <laughs> You know, so it wasn't. It wasn't that. You know, it could have been worse. It was basically what I'm trying to say. Right, right. So, and you also referenced a little bit of your your your, your background, the neighborhood you were born in, and the mix there. And and, and yeah. uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, this is an interesting uh, city. Actually, it's the tenth largest city in the UK, uh, in in England. Sorry, and um, and I'm sorry. What's the name of the city again? Leicester. I, I think you Americans uh, mispronounce it by calling it Leicester. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So I'm here to correct you. It's Leicester. <laughs> um, please don't do that again. And um, and that is an interesting city because it's the only city where in the UK where the minority are the majority meaning that there's a higher population of Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi and in terms ah. of a Caucasian it's a lot lower and usually it's the other way around yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and so my mother was actually in the UK a lot longer than my father so my mum was born in India in Gujarat and uh, then her family moved to Africa, to Malawi, uh, in a place called Lilongwe. Uh-huh. And then when she was 11, 
she moved to England and, and was in a city down the road from us called Coventry, which is a little saying we have in England, you get sent to Coventry, which basically <laughs> means you're silenced. Um, oh, wow. It's a horrible place, actually. <laughs> I remember going there as a child and hating it. Now, my father, he came to the country in 1981 mm-hmm. um, and he could only say yes and no. And he married my mother and they had... Uh, so here's a difference. There's arranged marriages and forced marriages. Forced marriages, you have zero say. And arranged marriages that you do have a say and you have chaperone dates. Okay. So my parents had a forced marriage. Oh, really? And so my father was flown over uh, after my mum's my dad. He went over to Pakistan and, and found this, heard about this family. They want to do... Uh, there's a lot of hierarchy and, uh, and within the uh, Islamic community with regards to uh intermarrying like they want you to be of uh marry the same like Mm -hmm. for like so if you're a sayyid which is apparently a direct descendant of the prophet muhammad they only want you to get married to a family member from someone who's a sayyid basically so which is quite fascinating stuff but also you know very much so rules 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 which is what i grew up with um so my parents were um, forced into this marriage. And, and just real quickly, mm-hmm. in the community in general, mm-hmm. is that is it well accepted? Do people push back on it? Is it just what they know? Well, interestingly, after, I mean, with my story as well, you know, they, I, they tried to force me into a marriage. And what was interesting about that was that year, I heard a lot of stories about women having forced marriages and trying to get out of them. And some women even having um, honor killings. That's a really big thing. So in terms of Lester... Now, for, and I've heard of that. Mm. But why don't you explain what an honor killing is? So an honor killing is, um, with regards to the Indian culture or Pakistani culture or anything of that kind of uh, ilk... Um, the girl holds uh, something which is called the izzat. Izzat is a Hindi word. How do you and spell that? Izzat is spelled um, I double Z A T. Izzat. Okay. And um, basically, she's the honor of the house. Okay. So they still, it's almost like women are still a bartering system almost. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it's troublesome having to get women, like the girls of the family, married off. But you want them to go into a wealthy family and do well. And so um, with an honor killing, if um, if they have disobeyed you in any way and uh, dishonored your family name, then they murder them. And there's been spates um, that I've heard of women who who basically, you know, have a boyfriend and then the family find out and then the family disagree and then they, you know, there's altercations. They usually, you know, either keep him in the house and then if the girl rebels, then it ends in, in quite, you know, in death, essentially. Yeah. And there was a, there's loads of those stories that still happen. They happened a lot. I, I mean, I guess I was just open to hearing it because it had happened to me. And so I heard a lot of stories about that. And it is a big issue for sure there's an issue around it um there is rebelling that happens and some people just accept it because that's just their life and when the honor killing doesn't like us for so far i'm i'm assuming for example in england that is against the law absolutely yeah absolutely but if you were to be in a village in pakistan no one nobody says anything nobody says anything and you know india is very fast forward uh, in terms of like 
where they are culturally in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to the village, they don't know any better. And it's the same with Pakistan. I think Pakistan's a little bit behind, but I suppose if you go to the capital in Islamabad, it's a little bit more forward thinking. So it really does depend on the area and where you are and the education and, mm-hmm. you know, the geographic, um, geography, sorry, of the, of the country, and, you know, because if you're in a rural place, mm-hmm. that's standard. Yeah. That is a standard practice, right. you know. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it does wow. go on. Okay, so I got you off track a little bit there. You were talking about your parents going into a, uh, a, a forced ma- or your, your mom going yeah. into a forced marriage. Yeah, so uh, my mom's side of the family has Sayyid, and then, um, and so is my father. And um, and so that's why it was a good match in my uh, mother's, like, father's eyes, you know, in that on that side of the family. So they got married in 81, and I have one older brother, and um, I was born in Leicester, and um, growing up was was pretty tough. I mean, being an alcoholic and not knowing it anyway, but um, but also feeling very isolated and very apart from, and and but also f- isolating myself even further. Right. <laughs> right? So um, I just didn't feel like I belonged anywhere because yeah. when I would hang out with Indian people, Pakistani people, they would call me a coconut. They're like, you're brown on the outside, but you're white inside. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And then when I would hang out with white people, they would call me a packy, which is a derogatory term from you know from any person that's brown, even if you're from India, Bangladesh, or Sri Lanka, like you're a packy. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I don't fit in with these people either. And then I was at home, and then I didn't feel like I fitted in with my family. Um, and when I was a kid, I just remember I was about seven, maybe six, actually. I was absolutely convinced that I was adopted and I was because I remember like asking for the birth certificate I was like where's my birth certificate and mum was like we it it just got stolen all that stuff that we know when we had burglary the other week I was like what are you talking about what do you mean you've lost the birth certificate how could you lose your child's birth certificate you should have it in a safe place Mm. um yeah I was just adamant because I just didn't feel like I connected to them I couldn't connect to my brother my mum and dad and I can't I just constantly felt alone yeah and you know that that got worse you know towards the end of my drinking interestingly when I started drinking you know I felt like I was a part of something right in my mind and then the drink stopped working and then all of a sudden I was back to how I was as a child which is you know I could be in a room full of people but feel absolutely and utterly alone mm-hmm. you know so, um, okay, so, that, I mean, uh, that is an interesting mix. I mean, without a doubt, I don't run into that here in the States very yeah. much at all, you know. Um, so then, okay, fast forward me. When did uh, uh, alcohol um, start start coming into, into your life? And when you had to have, you know, they always say alcohol is fun on the beginning mm-hmm. with it, and then it's fun plus problems, and then it's problems. Yeah. Take me through a short version of that. So um, I went to college, and, um, and when I was 17, um, I started hanging out with my college friends, and they'd go down the pub because that's what you do, right? And uh, around that age, you're like 17, 18, no one ever asked me for ID. And, you know, back in those days, it was just like easy to get a drink. And the drinking age in in the UK is 18. So um, we'd always go down the pub after, like, lessons. And, um, you know, I started on those Alco pop things like Bacardi Bruises. 
And, uh, and just, what do they call Alco Pops? Yeah, we call them Alco Pops because they're alcoholic uh, pop. You know, we call fizzy pop. Like, oh, okay, yeah. okay, gotcha. There you go. Um, <laughs> God, I always forget sometimes when I say something, people look, their eyes glaze over because they're like, I don't know what you just said, but I'm well, just going to nod. You know, I'm just going to so- nod. <laughs> I've been sober for a little while, and, and so. There are drinks that have come out, you know, there are things yeah. like Zima or whatever, yeah. you know, sometimes they just slide by me and I, mm-hmm. and I thought well, maybe that's a new one there. So, all right. No. So you uh, go to the pub. Yeah. So go down the pub and, you know, and it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty normal, I guess, in terms of like being a college student. And then I started working in a bar and, um, am I drinking, you know, in those days, I guess it was fun, but then it's. I, then I was like testing the boundaries with it <laughs> and then I was like excessively drinking and I just remember one time like I mean gosh how old was I probably ju- yeah it was before my 18th so I was still 17 I just remember um drinking this oh my gosh there was this horrible drinking game that's what it was it was this drinking game at someone's house party and I come in halfway through this game, I end up losing and I have to have this pint of like random drinks that everyone had like, you know, taken a little bit. There was like Tabasco sauce in there. There was just like juice and there was like whiskey and like all the vile liquids that they could find in this person's like student digs was in this pint glass. And then I had to down it. And obviously I was like, I'm fine. You know, look at me. I'm great. And then literally 10 minutes later, I'm throwing my guts up and got alcoholic poisoning. And I was out for days. And, uh, but then, you know, I did it again. Great. I just went and did it again. I kept on doing it. I was throwing up outside of like the windows of taxis. I was throwing up behind like, you know, bike sheds and like at the bloody bus stop and... Oh, I remember. And sometimes, you know what? My my drinking was like Russian roulette, really. It was like there'd be days where I'd have like two or three and there'd be days where it would just be, I'd just be a nightmare. You know, I was like on a mission, just on this mission. And, you know, I'd be like with my mates, like, right, we're going to get really messed up tonight. And they're like, okay. (laughs) That's kind of weird. (laughs) All right, so you so that's when you started drinking. So, uh, what happened between there and when you got into recovery? What I mean, well, I'm sure there's a lot. I mean, I mean how, yeah. do you, how do you make that? Uh, just a short version of that, I guess. Sure. So, um, I moved out when I of my parents' home when I was 17, which was like the worst thing that I could have done as a as a girl that was in an Islamic household. Oh, and let me take you back. Mm-hmm. I believe the reason that you moved out, if I remember right is because you were going into an arranged marriage, is that? Well, that that happened just after. I actually moved out of my um, home because my father was extremely violent. And so uh, he used to beat all of us, like my brother and me and my my mother. And he was extremely uh, controlling and just very angry, just really angry all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the weird thing is, is that I had... I also had a really great relationship with my father. Um, and I really was like the apple of his eye. He just like adored me and would, you know, uh, really shower me with gifts and just be very loving. And then there was this other side to him where he was just like crazed. And uh, it was just, it was like he was possessed. I can remember thinking like, this 
this isn't dad, it's, this is weird. And um, so, you know, I'm going to college, I'm trying to be like normal or what I think is normal, going out drinking and like dating guys and, right. and whatever and going to the movies. And my dad was like, you can't go out. Why are you going out? Who are these people? Who's on the phone? You know, because they gave me a mobile so I could keep in touch with them. So things just got worse and worse. So you weren't in the same house at this no, time, No, so right? then I moved right. out and I was living in this like shelter for like homeless kids basically. And, um, and so dad was pretty angry about that, of course. So was mum and the, the relationship was pretty fraught actually. And then just before my 18th, um, my, my mum and dad took me, uh, to Pakistan because they found out I was dating a white guy that I was working in a bar. And so they disapproved of that. And they took me to Pakistan under false pretenses. Now, I'm going to say this because people were just like, well, you should have known. You know, I actually had someone say that. You should have known they might have done something like that. And you know what? As a 17-year-old kid who thought that, you know, my mum and dad were the, like, absolute, you know, the world to me. And even though I was rebelling and even though my father had been so violent, I was like, they would never betray me like this, though. You know, that never crossed my mind. And I guess, you know, maybe I was naive or... Or just, you know, I just really didn't think that they would do that. I don't know. It's just, it didn't cross my mind. And so I get to Pakistan. um, I get my passport taken away. And then I was under house arrest, basically, by my family. Because all my dad's family live in Pakistan. Uh, Well, back then they did. And so um, I was there for 10 days in total. And you're 17 at this time, right? Yeah, it's just before my 18th, so I was there. And that was the other issue, is that because I'm not an adult, like, they could have had me there for a while. Right. <laughs> and because of my father being on a Pakistani national, you know, with regards to being able to stay there, like, it would have been indefinite. Right. So, um, thank God, though, my mum actually pushed against us having dual nationality, because my dad was like, we should get the Pakistani passports. My mum was like, no, that's a bad idea. So having a British passport was my saving grace in this because um, what happened was my cousin sister was actually helping me and she felt really sorry for me. So she was she was phenomenal. She uh, helped me and she took me to the call centre. I called my boyfriend up and I said, this has happened. He's like, okay, we're going to deal with this. And then... So help me that with like... What's a call center? So a call center is, they call it a PCO, and it's where you can uh, go and call internationally or even locally because people don't have phones in their houses because they're they're poor. So you would go to a call center and you were able to make international calls or even local ones. So my cousin took me there so I could call back home to England. And um, as soon as my boyfriend found out, he was like, okay, right, we've got this. So him and his friends, they all just like got in touch with the British Embassy, Amnesty International, the local police. And um, they got in touch with the embassy in Pakistan. And so the guy that uh, actually owned the call center, he could, uh, he overheard the conversation that I was having mm-hmm. on the phone. And uh, he's like, are you okay? Like, you sound like you're in a bit of bother because he could understand some English. Yeah. And I was like, uh, my parents are trying to force me into a marriage. And he goes, what's your nationality? I was like, I'm British. And he goes, well, then you're fine. You're okay. They can help you. And I was like, yeah, but I need to get to the embassy and I don't know how. And he was a good Samaritan. So he just wow. said... I'll take you. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, anything could have happened, but by God's grace, 
that guy was a good guy. Yeah. And so I managed to get out. Um, yeah, um, he could have been a guy. He could have been that, crazy. Right. Right. But I, I just was so desperate to get out of there. Right. And God had thrown this like person my way that I was very blessed to, that he walked into my life. Oh my you know, goodness. at that point that out of all the call centers, like yeah. that guy was the one that could understand what was happening and, and offered his help. And so my cousin and I uh, kind of hatched this plan. She goes, because there's five prayers, uh, call to prayers uh, in the day for the Muslims. And the earliest being Fajr. And Fajr namaz is just uh, just before sunrise. Okay. So it's really, really early in the morning at the you know crack of dawn, basically. Does everybody get up at the crack of dawn and do, I mean, for, well, I mean if they're Devout practicing Muslims, Muslims? Yeah, if they're practicing yeah. Muslims, they'll get up at that yeah. time to pray. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and so what happened was the azan was going on, the muazzin, which is the basically, I guess, the preacher of the, the mosque. They have these speakers attached to it, and so they would do the call for prayer, and you can hear it from every corner yeah. of the city. It's pretty amazing, but as soon as that started, like, my cousin was awake, and uh, I got up, she got up, she pretended she was doing her, you know, washing herself for prayers, and then she unlocked the door. I get there, I just, like put my shoes on and run out and run to this call center. The guy was waiting for me. He took me on his moped all the way up to like a really, uh, really kind of quite far. I think it was like an hour journey on this moped wow. over to the embassy. Got there to the embassy <laughs> and like there's this huge metal gate. And I was like, well, um, there's no doorbell. So <laughs> kind of just like <laughs> knocked on the door on this huge gate. And this armed guard, like just, it's, it was like something out of a bizarre movie. But he, there's this like little, you know, little door and you, right. all, he slides it and all you could see was his eyes. Oh, and, and I was like, he goes, yes. <laughs> and I was like, hello, um, my name is Samara. Um, I was told to come to the embassy. And he goes, oh, we've been expecting you. <laughs> I was like, all right then. And then this huge gate comes open and there's this massive complex of wow. buildings. And um, and then the guy that I was with that, that took me there, he just like, he goes, are you going to be okay? And I said, you've done enough. Like, I can't even thank you. And uh, and then he gets his big wad of cash out. And he goes, do you need any money? I was like, no, my God, I don't need any money from you. You've done enough. Like, absolutely. Thank you so much. And and that was it. Never saw him again. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, got so, out. So did the cousin's sister arrange for this guy to be there on the moped? I, I... No, he, like I said, he just overheard a conversation and offered his help. Oh, that was the same yeah. guy. Oh, mm-hmm, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I get airlifted out there two days later with armed guards at every point, and then um, I get back to England. And, you know, it was interesting because I was just in this deep depression after that, yeah. you know. And, you know, by this point, my 18th birthday had happened, and um, I was just a mess. I yeah. really was. And I, you know, subsequently broke up with that guy, and... Um, and that took me into a deeper depression and I tried to kill myself, you know. And here's the thing, like, it was a cry for help. I didn't really want to kill myself. Yeah. I didn't have the balls to do it. Right. 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 Um, but I also didn't have the balls to live. Right. It was just this horrible dichotomy of, like, I hate my life, but I also can't even bring myself to, to die, you know. It was just miserable. And that, that descended me into this, like crazy pattern of drinking after that 
that's when, um, and I, w I won't say that it took off. It didn't really just take off. I mean, it was a slow thing, but it was like drink and using drugs became my only friend yeah. through all of that. And all I was doing was suppressing the ghost of like my past really of, you know, um, and suppressing the anger that I had yeah. against my parents and uh, with my culture and my religion and, you know, the religion that I denounced as a child, really. And so I was just angry. I was always angry. Yeah. I came into the rooms and um, and I was just pissed off at the world, yeah. you know, and I had to learn to through the steps to, to be able to let go of that because I carried that for so long. And you know, I got into drugs big time, so that's a huge part of my story. But ultimately, it's the drink that I started with and it's the drink that I ended right. with, you right. know? The drugs just gave me the ability to drink more. Right. That's all it did. I understand you know? that. And so, yeah, I did it and I did it a lot, but alcohol, that was that was my poison, really. Yeah. And so I just kind of ambled through my 20s, like, in a constant state of misery. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only way to describe right. it. It was like... Nothing was good enough and nothing was like enough, yeah. you know, I needed more of everything. Yeah. And when I didn't get enough, it was just like, well, my life's terrible. God has dealt me this hand and I guess I'm just going to always be miserable. The little black you know? cloud going to follow yeah. me around. Gosh, it was like a black storm continually on my life. It was <laughs> horrible. I mean, I just... Oh. I was either angry at you because you had it or I was angry at myself because I didn't have it, you know? And I remember once hearing this this woman, it was here in Dallas actually, my home group, and it's just stuck with me. But, you know, I, um, you know, people talk about the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Yeah. But you can always water your side. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's true. And I was like, oh my gosh, that really makes sense. <laughs> Why do I want your bloody grass? I've got my bloody own, haven't I? I just got to feed it. <laughs> Blimey. But I came into recovery when I was 29. Okay. Yeah. So that was uh, that was 10 years or so, 11 yeah. years, whatever, mm -hmm. of uh, um, uh, research, mm -hmm. right? Debauchery. Debauchery would <laughs> Debauchery. be the word. And you know what? It's um, In the big book, it talks about the, the illness being progressive, right? So just before I moved to London, I went off to Southeast Asia and was teaching English out there. And um, I didn't drink for the time that I was there. But I was horrible to be around and I was just crazy you know and it's basically what I know now is being a dry drunk yeah. essentially that's what I was and so before I I mean the reason why I stopped drinking was like well I'm going to be going to the spiritual place and you know I'm going to do some yoga on the beach I'm going to hang out with some monks and I'm going to go to all these like cool temples yeah. like I'm in the zone of spirituality um, no so that's not what happened I went out there with my then boyfriend go and dump him and I'm like I'm done with you <laughs> and um, and then go and teach English at this place and you know it, that was fulfilling but you know the people that I was living with in the eco house I was just a horrible person to be around because I was continually mad at everyone eco house yeah it was this really cool place where uh, just a bunch of people we all volunteered to go and like stay in this house together we used to cook together and we all used to teach together and there was another group that lived in this eco house that were building the school because this was after the 2014 uh, tsunami when it hit so yeah. they're regenerating the area they've yeah. been doing it for a few years yeah. and so we were just part of this group of volunteers that went and stayed oh. in this house and 
and just basically gave back to the community. And here's the thing, right? I'm doing that. And it's like, what an amazing experience, (laughs) right? What a cool thing to do and like a giving thing. But I wasn't giving (laughs) or kind or like enjoying it. You know, I was just like pissed all the time and like picking holes in like this voluntary like huge company and go you are not doing it right because this should happen and why is this like this and you should do this you know oh gosh what a nightmare (laughs) and I was so you know and I wasn't drinking at that time and then I get back to England and uh and I was like, right, I've got to, I've got to get out of Leicester. Leicester's the problem. That's what I've got to do. <laughs> right. So I then got a job in London, and then like literally without any thought, you know, one afternoon I just like go went. I'm gonna move to London. That's it. And I did it. Aye. Like, I didn't have two pennies to rub together. <laughs> I had no home. I was homeless at that point. I didn't um, didn't even have a job while I came back. So it was like I just had no money. Uh, I was like I said homeless no boyfriend you know my my relationship with my family had just completely disintegrated mm-hmm. and I was just like well nobody loves me I'm leaving <laughs> you know? it's just like, I'm leaving in a blaze of glory they'll they'll soon rue this day right. you know I'm gonna go off to London and seek my fortune and then they'll be sorry um, I don't even know they, who they were right. uh, but I did it and um, yeah then I moved to London so, yeah, again, like I said, I wasn't drinking, but then my first night in London, so seven months of, like, not drinking, my first night in London, I had a pint of cider, and I went home, and that was it, and it was fine, and then that, I think I moved, like, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and then that following weekend, that was it, two and a half years of complete insanity and this shows to me as it talks about in the big book the progressive right illness so I went from like just ambling through and it was just like you know there were consequences and there were problems and there were few and far between but they happened but I was just in it was just the angst within me that was more overpowering than anything and then I go I didn't drink for like seven months and then as soon as I pick it up all of a sudden like I'm in hell Right. Like it had just escalated so much that, you know, I get brought to the rooms two and right. a half years later. Right. right. Um, and so the thing that got me to the rooms really was the fact that I got suspended from my job for my behavior. Um, so, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I work in hospitality and have done for 18 years. And I was like going across this you know, the country, opening restaurants. So my drinking was like two weeks in that city, two weeks in this city, three weeks in that city, a month over here. So it was, um, I guess, you know, people didn't really see the extent of my drinking. And I think they had an idea. They were like, I just thought you were a good time girl. You know, you just like to have a drink and have fun. But if you had been traveling with me for that entire time, you'd go, you've got a problem. There is something clearly wrong here. And I lived out of a suitcase for two and a half years, like traveling the country and, and uh, just getting drunk in every city that I was in. But they got worse. Each time I opened a restaurant in a different city, the drinking got worse and worse and the consequences became more and more until ultimately my last drunk uh, was in this nightclub um, in this little village called Chichester <clears throat> near the south coast of England. Really quaint little village. They didn't know what hit them when I got there. But <laughs> <laughs> I go to this nightclub. And I just remember 
probably about a total of 10 seconds worth of that night, you know, just snippets here and there. That was my last drunk. And, um, and the thing that, you know, I always refer to, which it talks about in um, page six of the big book, you know, and I really relate to this. And this is how I felt the next morning after my last drunk. And, you know, I can still feel it now. I can still, it's so tangible, that feeling. But <clears throat> on page six of the big book, it says, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. Ugh, you know, that just, that small short paragraph just absolutely nails how I felt. Yeah. Impending calamity. I knew there was something incredibly wrong, and I knew that something bad was about to happen, but I just didn't know what it was, right? And I had this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. You know, they had found out. Right. Who's they? I don't right. know. I do. don't know, right. but they have found out. So I get back to London, I get a phone call from my boss, and he's like, Samara, I really need to see you. And I was like, okay, game's up. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that was it. That was what went through my head. I was like, they know, the gig's up, that's it, it's over, right. it's over. And um, I went to see him, that was on a, on a Thursday night, and um, he basically said to me, I, I have to suspend you from work. We have to do an investigation with regards to what happened when you were in Chichester. We heard some stories and, and, I, and he goes, this is out of my control now. And then he said something which will always stick with me and I'm glad it will because it, it's a real stark reminder because it was really, um, God, it was like a dagger through the heart. And he said to me, because we, my boss and I had become good friends over the time, you know, that we'd been traveling together and opening these restaurants. And he said to me, he goes, off the record, Samara, you know, you're such a lovely girl, but you just keep on effing things up, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. I don't know why. I couldn't even answer that. I, was right. like, I just didn't know. And then I walked out of that meeting and, uh, I absolutely know this was God speaking to me. I instantly picked up my phone uh, to call my friend, Johnny. Now, Johnny was working for the sister company of the, the company I was working for. Mm -hmm. So he, he knew all the people. And, um, and so when I said to him, hey, you know, my boss just suspended me. He's like, all right, what are you doing tomorrow night? And I said, well, nothing. And he goes, come meet me for a coffee. Now, if you rewind a month earlier, Johnny and I were having dinner one night and uh, he was having a lemonade. He'd been in recovery about a month. Mm -hmm. I was there with a bottle of red wine, <laughs> of course. And um, I was regaling my stories of, you know, what I'd been up to and how I, I was just like living life. And he just looked at me and just said, do you think you've got a problem with alcohol? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? problem with alcohol I mean what's an alcohol I mean no no you know the delusion of right. my ism was just that I had zero idea I had a problem right. with alcohol and so he planted a seed that you know a month earlier so that happened and then I get suspended from work I call him up and then we go meet up for a coffee the next day so I feel like you know Jonathan was in my life because he's the one that 12-stepped me in the program. You know, God God had a plan. Right. And um, so the next day, it was a Friday, <clears throat> the 17th 
of November 2012 and um, he takes me to a newcomers meeting and uh, I just remember that building so well. <laughs> I walked into it and it had this wood panelling. Uh, I remember it looking like a sauna and it was, uh, <laughs> it was called the Quaker House. So um, I went down this narrow passageway and uh, it just smelled musty. And there was this like low hum of chatter that I could hear off into this other room. I walk around the corner and there was just, everyone was jovial. There was a guy making tea and there was biscuits there. Uh, British biscuits, not American biscuits, I should add. Right. (laughs) That's what you call cookies. That's so interesting. Um, We have coffee and donuts. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Yeah, coffee and donuts. We're like, no, tea and biscuits, thanks. (laughs) Uh, the proper way and uh, this uh, this guy there with his kettle making this like tea and he's just like what would you like and I was like um, just an English breakfast please and then took a what's few, an English breakfast what does that just mean? a black tea English breakfast black tea oh okay because gotcha. obviously being British we have an array of teas we have yeah. herbal infusions as well um, not just the standard black tea and so <laughs> I just it was really funny like people were just happy they just seemed happy, right? And it's the chatter that you always hear before a meeting, just before it starts. You know, when people turn up early and they, you know, and they hug each other and I haven't seen you for a while, how are you? That's the chatter that I got to hear. And um, just before the meeting started, Jonathan said, he looked around at me and he just said, listen out for the similarities, not the differences. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is he all right? <laughs> <laughs> Because I thought I was there for my poor little alcoholic friend, Johnny, um, who, who, you know, has got a problem. I was just there to support him. Unbeknownst to me, Johnny was 12-stepping me into the program. He knew I just needed to find out for myself, right? And then just something absolutely wonderful happened. Um, That meeting, actually, it was his first meeting. Mm -hmm. So they just started that group. And the guy that was up at the front that was holding the meeting... Uh, who, who read out the script, uh, an American. Mm-hmm. The guy that was sharing his story, an American. Mm-hmm. And um, and Craig couldn't be more different to the, the person that, you know, I was, like, sat there. You know, I'm a young woman, you know, age 29 from, a, from this really weird background. <laughs> and then here is this American guy um, who is, I think Craig was in his 70s or 80s, I forget now, you know, this older, white, like, white guy. Yeah. And um, and he's lived a life, right? And he's been in England for quite some time now. But I just related to everything he said. Yeah. And he didn't really talk about, you know, the drunk log in terms of, like, you know, I drank and I puked. It yeah. was... What I really understood about Craig was the feelings that he had. Yeah. You know, um... It says in the big book, the bitter morass of self-pity, quicksand stretch around me. You know, that feeling of despair, that feeling of fear, the feeling of that, that nothing was right. There was something inherently inside that, that was wrong and I couldn't pinpoint what it was. You know, it was like Craig had reached into my mind and dragged everything out and was able to articulate it. All the stuff that I had been feeling since I was a child, all of a sudden this man was talking about. And it was just insane, you know? And I just remember feeling 
hopeful. Yeah. And everyone started sharing. So over there, it's, you know, Ray's voice sharing and all these people like, yes, I really relate to this part of the story when you said this, this and this. And I, I just kind of listened. And, yeah, there was people from different backgrounds and ages. And I was like, wow, you know, this is really interesting. Because I just thought an alcoholic was a bold, fat man that lived under a bridge, right? And I don't even know where I got that idea from. But that's the one that I had, you know? And so I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. And then, um, you know, after the meeting finished, the guy that was uh, holding the meeting, he was actually Johnny's, uh, my mate Johnny, his sponsor. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time that he was. Um, he comes up to me and Ted's like, <laughs> with his American accent, he goes, so what do you think? Uh, and I was like, oh, blimey, I'm an effing alcoholic. <laughs> and he's just like, yep. You know, uh, you just answered an age-old question for me. I hear people over here impersonating British people all the time, people from the UK, yeah. you know, all sorts of England, Ireland, Scotland, you know, Welsh, the whole nine yards. But I always think, how do English people impersonate Americans? <laughs> and I just heard one. Well, actually, I'll have you know, there are a lot of our actors are very good at doing American accents. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's another story for another time. Um so yeah, Ted then says to me, he goes, that, have you thought about sponsorship? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> and he goes, well, there's a lot of women that are sponsoring here. You should go and talk to that woman. And then pointed at this girl called Mel. And she was my first sponsor, you know? So I, came, I come in uh, on the 17th on a Friday. The following day on Saturday morning, uh, I got taken to a meeting by a woman from that Friday night meeting. She was um, holding a meeting up in North London. So I was living in North London at this time and I go to this meeting in Belsize Park and uh, I absolutely loved it. I picked up my uh, chip there, my 24 hour chip. Mm. And then that night, Saturday night, I go to a big book study uh, in a wet house and then um, Mel was there. She was greeting and then I got chatting to her. This wasn't Mel B, was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there's, sorry. There's more than one Mel. Come on. Come on, John. Um, and so... I go up to her after the meeting and I said, will you be my sponsor? I didn't even think about it. I didn't mull it over. I was just told that she sponsors and I just went up to her and she seemed cool. Like, you know, she just seemed, she seemed fine. You know what I mean? It was, it wasn't a case of like, oh yeah, I've got to have her because she's wearing the right clothes or she looks the right way. I was like, she seems normal. Yeah. You know? That was the only way I could describe it. She just seemed normal. So I asked her to be my sponsor and then we started working the steps that week. Wow. Yeah. And I haven't looked back. How about that? Mm -hmm. So tell me then a little bit. So here's what I'm interested in. A couple of pieces. I've heard you talk about the chapter We Agnostics before Mm -hmm. and how important that is to you. But I'm also curious as to with with your background and, uh, you know, can you describe a little bit about your relationship with God? Is it based in, was it like building? Did you have to um, uh, forget about some things you had learned in the past and create a new God from the ground up? Talk to me a little bit about that. So I gave up on Islam pretty young, actually, because whenever I would question anything, I was a real questioner as a child. And whenever I would question anything, I wasn't ever given an answer. You know, and I kind of just found it weird that I was reading a book. The Quran is in Arabic and I was reading this book in Arabic, Mm -hmm. but 
I couldn't speak to you in Arabic. I couldn't read, you know, new Arabic as it is now in its form. I couldn't have a conversation in Arabic, but old scripture Arabic, the Quran, I could read fluently. Really? But I couldn't understand what it said. And it just was a little bit baffling, you know. And they don't teach you Arabic in Islamic schools. And, you know, half the time I was like, Islamic school, oh my gosh, wow. So Islamic school, I used to go five days a week after school. I'd come home from school, we'd get home, eat, wash, and then go to Islamic school. Uh, five days a week. And is there a different... <clears throat> when you say Islamic school, does that mean that there... Is it like Catholic school where you're learning how to read and write and then you learn religion at the same time? All you're doing is praying the Quran. So you learn your Arabic ABC, so you are able to then graduate to praying the Quran. So the Quran is really complex, and there's about um, there's a few books you have to read before you're able to read that fluently. And essentially, it's it's kind of a now that I'm about to explain this, it is a it's such a weird concept. But what you do, you go to Islamic school to learn about Islam mm -hmm. in terms of in in terms of its stories and about um, you know. Muhammad the prophet and all the other prophets um, and so the the guy that would be the teacher would you know generally have a really good knowledge of that but I went to a lot of different Islamic schools and they all ran pretty differently but essentially this is it Friday was the day where you would have Friday prayers and then they would teach you about and give you lessons of Islam and the stories and the Quran the other four days would be just reading you'd go in um, and when you're brand new you'd learn the the ABC of Arabic and then you'd get another book which would teach you how to join up those letters. And it was all about the pronunciation. That's what the teacher would listen out for, is are you pronouncing that word correctly? And then once you do that, the, the Quran has 30 books inside, so 30 chapters within it. You start at chapter 30, which is the easiest, and also is the one that you need to be able to have your daily prayers. So the, the Muslims pray five times a day, which is when the Mu'azzin calls uh, for the Azan. Um, the call for prayer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you need uh, the last book to be able to use those prayers in those, in the, the actual five times a day prayer. Yeah. So you start at 30. Right. Once you've graduated from the last book in the Quran, you then go to the front of the book and go all the way through. And it's a big deal when you finish reading. But uh, what you would get is like lessons from each class. Um, they would give you either a, you know, like, four or five paragraphs to learn and you had to go home learn the pronunciation get it absolutely bang on and then go back to school and then read it to your teacher and if you didn't get it right yeah. you'd get caned like we used to get beaten oh, like really? sticks and uh yeah you would you would get punishment for that so that was my god okay <laughs> <laughs> Um, one that I lived in fear of, you know, and yeah. and so obviously being taken to Islamic school, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. But here's the thing: I was a bit more clever than my brother. I realised at an earlier <laughs> age, if I did really well at Islamic school, I wouldn't have to go anymore. Right. <laughs> and so that's what I did. <laughs> and so uh, my brother is a year older than me, and when I finished the Quran before he did, he was really pissed at me about that. <laughs> But my parents were like, look at our daughter, isn't she great? She's such a good student. Um, and so, yeah, I learned pretty quick, right. you know, typical alcoholic. I was like, how do I get out of this mess as quickly as possible? I'll do it. And so I just really, uh, I just was not into Islam or religion as a whole, you know, for a while. But then in my 20s, what was interesting is that 
I really was drawn to churches and cathedrals and there's a really beautiful cathedral in Leicester in my hometown um, where actually Richard III has been buried there now after they found the, his body in a car park next to it but um, very interesting it's fascinating history um, that's definitely for another time but um, I used to go to that cathedral you know by myself and just sit there mm-hmm. you know and um, I don't know why I was drawn to churches but I just felt really at peace mm-hmm. in a church and, um, and you know, I don't know, I, I don't know whether it was the architecture or, or whether people were friendly or, I don't know, it just really was something that through my, through my 20s before I came into the rooms, I would like go to, you know, um, <clears throat> services on Sundays or I would just go in on a random, random day and just sit there for a while and just, and, you know, pray. And I didn't even know what I was praying to or who to or whether it was a Christian God, but, um, my idea of God, you know, I'd kind of left that and I just didn't really have one, I guess. So by the time I got to the rooms, what was interesting is that I was open. I was like wide open for it. And so I didn't really fight against it. I didn't fight against anything. In fact, <laughs> uh, so the first woman that sponsored me, and Mel, um, I ended up having to change sponsors. Um, and she, she's an incredible woman. Um, her name's Jo <clears throat> and Jo was Jo was fantastic actually and she was pretty militant with me because I needed that I needed someone that was a bit hard mm-hmm. uh, because I was so rebellious mm-hmm. and I'm just very opinionated and I'm very strong minded um, and because my father you know was so controlling that's why I was even more like <sighs> I'm authority I mean to be perfectly honest, all alcoholics have an issue with authority, right. but you know, it's just like, it just reminded me of my dad and, and I still needed that, you know, someone to be strong enough to be able to, to tell me these are the principles of AA. Yeah. You know, this is how we do it. This is how we recover. This is what's in the big book. This is how we're going to do it. There's only one solution. And, um, the thing that she said to me that was really fascinating was that I could find my own concept of God. And so after having religion shoved down my throat, Mm -hmm. after having so many rules around God um, and, you know, having to only pray to God at a certain time, five times a day, um, reading this book in Arabic that I didn't understand, but having to do it anyway, even though I didn't really relate to the language or the liturgy, you know, none of that. I didn't get it. There was it just I just felt really separated from it. It was just something I had to do because I was born into it. Right. But then what AA taught me was that it didn't matter where you were from, that you could have your own concept. Mm -hmm. And because my God before was one of, you know, like the Catholic God, fire and brimstone. I hear that quite a lot when people talk about Catholicism and I'm like, don't worry guys, Islam is exactly the same. Um, You know, and so I was really open to the idea of a God um, that was loving and kind, you know. And um, I was told just to prick, you know, a couple of words that you want your God to be. And I was like, that was it. Loving and kind was all I could muster up. I was like, that's my God. He's loving and he's kind. Right. You know, and that was enough. And that, and my sponsor said to me, she goes, yeah, that's a great start. That's great. And that will do. That's right. You know, because ultimately when I get to step three, I have to hand my will and my life over to the care of God at step two, right? And then step three, this is where some magic happens because I have to surrender, you know? And it has to be a power greater than myself because my history has proven 
that my own will and my own power did not work. Mm -hmm. So where do we find this power? The book you know, asks that question. Mm -hmm. And the key is, is to find a power greater than myself. So it's not within me. It's not going to be my head. So it's some sort of spiritual principle, axiom, law that, that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And so all I have to do at step three is just to be willing, right. right? Just to be willing, crack the door open enough, just enough that I will surrender and I'll be willing to just get on this journey. Because what's what happened when I came in is that I was so broken and I was so in self and miserable that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and that I was open to the willingness to open to change right. and um, to the suggestion that finding a power greater than myself was going to make me better right. you know and so I didn't fight against anything I just did as my sponsor told me to do you know so, um, I want to I want to talk about I, I I've heard you talk about some important amends in your life before, mm -hmm. right? And uh, we'll probably wrap it up with that. So, talk to me about the ninth step, any sort of important amends that you've made throughout your life, and uh, um, uh, anyway, just want you go into that a little sure. bit. Sure. So, of course, the. Um, <laughs> Interestingly, with the step four, when I did that on my mom and dad, I thought I'd forgiven them, uh, but it, it turns out I just ignored it <laughs> and suppressed that whole thing and just pushed it down and pushed it down and didn't want to look at it. And then the step four allowed me to look at that um, and also see my part. That's the most important bit, that mm. column there, is seeing my part in it and where I was wrong. So when it came down to um, doing my men's, you know, I had some incredible experiences. And um, my, <clears throat> excuse me, my my mother and I was, we were kind of like a little bit better than we were, you know, it was okay, but it was, you know, it just wasn't right. Mm -hmm. um, there was still some hurt there and some pain. And um, my dad, he'd actually been out of my life for a while now, by this point, he'd, um, gone away out of the country for a couple of years and and prior to that he um when I used to go and visit him he just couldn't even bear to look at me you know he would walk out of a room if I walked in right you know and even if I said hello to him he just couldn't even answer me back he was so ashamed of me and so so what do you angry. think that shame was like for him? I'm just curious. So, if if I were to ask him, what what, what do you? I mean, I know you can't get in his head totally, but do you have an idea because of the culture mm. of what he was thinking? Well, ultimately, I brought shame on the family, didn't I? Mm -hmm. And sullied the name. His only daughter went out, moved away, you know, on her own, dated a white guy. Mm -hmm. God knows what else she's been doing. Gotcha. And so that also looks bad upon him. That makes him a bad father. Gotcha. Because I decided to go off and rebel. So the shame wasn't even carried just for like me and who I am, but also him and how he looks to the outside world. Right. And we don't talk about things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, everything on the exterior has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. 
and it has to look right to everyone even if it isn't inside it doesn't matter and so that brought a lot of shame for him uh, and especially with his brothers you know seven brothers in Pakistan three sisters and they were like oh what's happened to her then you know and and my dad I remember he distinctly told my family he goes they call me Sumi in my in my family and he goes Sumi's dead she's dead to me you haven't got you haven't got, uh, you know, a daughter or a cousin or a niece. She's dead. That's how angry he was right. with me. And then, as I said, he, you know, went away for a couple of years. And then I was, um, I'd finished doing my step five with my sponsor um, at her house. And I remember walking home and then very suddenly just getting a text message from my dad. Right. Out of the blue, from nowhere. And it was interesting because when I was doing my step five, like I was really crying. I just bawled my eyes out when I was um, reading my step five about my dad, you know, and how I was re resentful against him. But I was crying because I realized what I had done wrong and I felt, felt bad, actually. And, um, and I could also have empathy for him, you know. And so... After that text message, you know, I asked dad if he was okay and, you know, there was a little bit of contact and then when it finally came to doing my amends, my dad came up to London and um, we hung out and we were in the park and it was a beautiful, beautiful summer's day and uh, we sat on the park bench and uh, I made my amends to my dad and I just, and I said to him, you know what, like, I want to make amends for the harm that I've caused you. You know, I caused you worry and I was unkind with my words. You know, I was physically violent. Um, I didn't listen to the rules that you had made in your own home and that I should have followed. You know, and I just, just apologized for all that stuff. And my dad comes back with this great retort and he goes, well, Samara, when you have kids one day, you'll understand what little they can be <laughs> just insert an expletive there but um and I was like wow okay and then our relationship changed you know because I changed and what I could get from that is that you know my father didn't go out to deliberately try and ruin my life as I thought he did what he was doing was out of love love right you know he had moved into this country and he was like thousands of miles from his family that he had been with all his life and then gets ripped out of there from his seven brothers, three sisters, his mum and dad, this extended family that he'd been living with under one roof mm -hmm. and gets taken to this other country, marries a woman he doesn't know, can't speak a word of English and all of a sudden, you know, he's got these two kids to look after and he has to navigate his way around, right. you know. And what he was trying to do was keep a little piece of home in, in England. That's what he wanted. He wanted us to grow up with the same culture that he grew up in because he valued that. Right. That was something that was really precious to him and he wanted to give it to us. But of course, we lived you know, in a different country. We were brought up in a different place. And so for us, the values are different. And so I was able to have empathy for him and know that my father was doing that because he cared and he wanted the best for me. You know, and so our relationship changed because I was able to, as a result of the steps, see all of this 
and be loving and kind and tolerant towards him. And then um, we just, I mean, Dad and I have, you know, a great relationship. We, I would always go and visit him um, at the weekends down in Leicester and would go thrift store shopping and would hang out and, you know, would watch Bollywood movies together. <laughs> Bollywood. Yeah, movies. like all black and white ones. Cause he was, and he would say to me, Sumi, you're the only one that understands. You you like these movies. I like these movies too. And, and he'd go, hey, have you seen this one? And it was just, it was the best. It was the best. And like when I left England and I was coming here to Dallas, you know, he was so upset. He was really, really upset. And he just said, you know, I'm going to miss you. He's like, I don't want you to go. Mm. He's like, Sumi, I love you. But, you know, I get to have that relationship because I work the steps, you know, and um, I get to show up for life. And that was, that was an amends that really really made me see the power of God and and how um AA really really works right you know same daughter same father mm-hmm. but something changed and mm-hmm. that was you yeah I mean my dad's still the same guy he still gets angry about <laughs> stuff but our interaction has changed because I did right all I can do is change ourselves mm-hmm. well listen there's more. I could go on and on. We could go on a couple more hours. You were, uh, you're articulate. Um, you, uh, uh, I, I love your opinions, as you call them, right? Uh, and uh, uh, this has just been a, uh, a great time together. And uh, I'm so glad that you came over. Maybe we could pick it up a part two some other time. But uh, uh, God bless you. Thank you for coming by, Samara. Thank I sure do appreciate me. it. And uh, we'll talk again soon.